Once again, good evening. Everybody's good? Yes, yes, yes. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start a new study today. Um, it's the book that comes right after the book of Daniel. But in order to find it, you've got to go back in your Bibles, all the way back to the book of Ezra. So we're going to be in Ezra chapter 1 today. We're starting a new series, a new study um, through the Old Testament. But it's kind of chronological the way that we attack this, because where we land here in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, which we'll take over the next few weeks. Um, and then I'm not sure what we'll get into after uh, we finish Esther. But uh, Job is right after that. Maybe we'll do Job. But um, I could do Job in one night, all 50 chapters. Yeah, first two chapters, 45 chapters of them guys talking nonsense. God shows up, tells them to shut up, tells them what's really going on. So Ezra, again, as we get into these Ezra and Nehemiah books, they're, they're what we call post-captivity um, books or post-exile books. So the, the history of Israel, as we know, is that they went into um, captivity as God promised. God prophesied. And so you know, kind of, um, again, time-wise, where we are here, um, the prophet Jeremiah, Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah when he came to the conclusion in Daniel chapter 9 that, um, the 70 years of captivity was going to be over soon. And so after the 70 years of captivity, then um, God raises up Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, and these others to go back to the, the Jerusalem that was a wasteland that Nebuchadnezzar conquered and to begin to rebuild um, Jerusalem in, in what we call traditionally Aliyah. It's a Hebrew word, Aliyah, it means returning to your homeland. And so Aliyah has been happening in Israel since 1948 now. And, and over the years, Israel continues to um, encourage and push Jews from around the world to, to venture out in Aliyah, which is, again, returning to their homeland. And I forget what year it was. I have a note in my Bible somewhere. But somewhere um, around between 2000 and 2010, for the first time in history, um, or, or I guess recent history, 1948, there's more Jews in Israel today than there is um, in, in the United States. And so New York had, had, you know, I talked to some, yeah, Florida, New York. I talked to a, Jew, a Jewish uh, doctor this week, and, and she's from New York. And I asked her, and she said, I had never been to Israel. She said, but I grew up in New York, and it was like Israel where I lived, you know. And there was more Jews there than there was in Israel. And I said, well, there was until this particular time. And then that number changed. So, again, these post-exilic books where they're heading back um, after the captivity. Now, quickly... Israel is um, broken up into the 12 tribes, right? And of those 12 tribes, the 10 northern tribes um, were up in the north, the two southern tribes. So I don't know how many of you guys are with me. We did go through um, Genesis to Chronicles already on Wednesday nights. And so we studied quite in depth the history of um, Israel and their, their kind of, you know, where it starts is them coming out of Egypt and Joshua leads them into the promised land and they, they conquer and they grow there and then we have the time of the judges, Samson, and um, the other judges that are there. And then we get into the time of the kings and Samuel and First and Second Kings. And then First um, and Second Chronicles chronicles the, um, the time of the kings and that period of Israel's history under King David and King Solomon and all the kings of Israel. Well, in those years, leaving Egypt, um, going into 40 years in the wilderness, going into the promised land, um, the 12 tribes of Israel were divided. There was only a, a time under King David and then another short time under King Solomon where the 12 tribes of Israel were all together and united under one ruler. But for most of their history, they were divided. Ten in the north, called the Northern Kingdom or Samaria, and two in the south, called Judah or the Southern Kingdom. And so the northern ten tribes, they, they, had never, they never had a good king. In all the history of Israel, they never had a good king. In the southern tribes, Israel had a good king, a bad king, a good, good king, a bad, bad king. And as they went through their history of different good and bad kings, the northern ten tribes, they were taken into uh, captivity before the, the two southern tribes were taken into captivity in Babylon. The Assyrians had taken them, and they were in captivity. And then um, Nebuchadnezzar shows up and takes the, the northern tribes or the southern tribes into captivity. Um, hey, Brian, when you get a chance, will you put up the, the Daniel slide with the statues to kind of give us the time frame for where we're at? We'll talk about that in a minute. So, um, so the two southern tribes, they go into captivity, and, and, and they stayed there for 70 years. 
and then they start to come out. So now there's a, if you have your Bible open, Second Chronicles to Ezra, there's a 70-year gap between Second Chronicles. Chronicles ends where they're getting ready to go into, ba- into captivity. Um, Ezra ends where they come out of captivity. And so having just come out of um, Daniel, we'll, we'll get into um, the stuff where it coincides. And again, this is now after Daniel. Even though we're way back in our Bible, it's after Daniel. Lots of kind of setup when I also start a new book, so bear with me. But let's, let's look at the, the beginning. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of, you guys with me? Jeremiah, that's the Jeremiah in your Bibles. So for homework and for context, if you want to read Jeremiah, um, you can read Jeremiah with these books. Might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. <coughs> so the five, um, the first year, verse one there of the king of the year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, we're talking 536 B.C. So you see here on the on the thing and I know, again, you guys probably can't read this because it's there, but we have the Babylonian um, um, Empire. That's where Babylon was built. Nebuchadnezzar, the hanging gardens, the most famous city in the world, the city of Babel, of Babylon. That's where um, Nimrod in Genesis chapter 6 built the Tower of Babel in your Bibles, is in that ancient city of Babylon. And it is a demonic um, stronghold and city biblically. And the, the religion of the world, the one world religion that the Antichrist will, will ultimately run, is, is called the Babylonian religion. That term Babylon is used hundreds of times in your Bible. We're going to come to it on Sunday mornings here very quickly as we get into the final fight between God and the Babylonian religion of the devil. So the devil's religion, this Babylonian religion, it has many lanes. He has a freeway. The devil has a freeway that all leads to destruction, as Jesus said. Jesus said there's a broad road that leads to destruction, and many are on it. And there's a narrow road that leads to salvation, and few go thereby, right? And so on Jesus' highway, it's, it's narrow because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. So Satan's plan of deception since, since Babylon is Babylon was the first lane in that, in that demonic highway of, of false religions because what's out there in the world today? What, what kind of options do you have to believe in things that are out there, right? There's a million things. But all Satan has to do is continue to add lanes to his freeway, and he doesn't care which lane you're in. He doesn't care if you're an atheist or, or this or that or where you land or, you know, whatever, you are. As long as you're not on Jesus' single lane, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and all, and no man comes to the Father except through me. So Babylon is important. So Nebuchadnezzar starts in Daniel's prophecies, the head of gold. Well, by the providence of God, everybody say providence. So cool. We're going to talk about that tonight. The providence of God, Daniel is reigning, or not reigning, he's, he's an advisor, and God raises him to the top of the Babylonian kingdom. He's second in command to, or he's the first advisor to King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, when the Medo-Persians um, conquer Babylon, as God predicted, and Babylon was an inconquerable city. Um, the Euphrates River ran through the center of Babylon, and they had everything they needed inside the walls of the city to live for a hundred years. And the Medo-Persian army had, had, had advanced and was camped on the outside, and they laughed and threw parties on the inside. And you remember the story of, of Nebuchadnezzar's son or grandson who's there, and, and Belteshazzar, and he's the new king, and he's reigning, and they're laughing, and they go to the temple of God, and they get the instruments from the temple, and they begin to drink out of them, and they're partying, and the handwriting on the wall shows up, and writes, meeny, meeny, tekel, you farce, and you have been weighed and found wanting. Basically, this is it. And that very night, the Medo-Persian army came to the gates where the, that blocked the river, and whoever the guard was had left the gates unlocked, and there was no guards, and the Medo-Persian army walked into Babylon and took over Babylon, and then the kings, there were some successive kings of this Medo-Persian empire. Now the Medes, they start the history of the Medo-Persian dominance of the world, and then the Persians eventually take over. And so the Persian becomes dominance. Now now Iran, modern-day Iran, um, I don't know when, but I think in the, in the 1900s, early 1900s, uh, Iran has always been known as Persia. If you looked at a map, it wouldn't say Iran, it would say Persia. And today it says Iran, but those are the Persian people. And so, you know, they, they're, they're not Arab in the Middle East. You know, it's like if you grew up where I grew up, where lots of um, Latinos and 
You know, you call one of your friends from Nicaragua a Mexican. It's like, I'm not Mexican, man. I'm South American. Or I'm from Nicaragua. Like, there's a big difference, you know. And, um, and the same thing in the Middle East. If you're from Iran, you're not Arab like most of the other countries that are Arab. They're, they're Persian, and they fancy themselves as Persians. And, so, and, and their, their, their um, Islam is different as well because they're Shiite Islam, and then most of the um, Islam world is Sunni. Saudi Arabia, where major- is majority Islam, is all Sunni. And so they have different eschatology. They actually fight with each other. So the Medo-Persian Empire takes over, and there's some successive kings that Daniel is there a part of. And where we land today is the Persians have taken over 536. So um, now we have a new king that, that, that's rising up, a guy by the name of Cyrus. And so um, real quickly, let me tell you just a few things if you're taking notes about the book of Ezra. Um, Ezra himself... Um, he's given credit in your Bibles for writing First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Okay, so those are he authored all of these books in our Old Testament. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah originally was one scroll; it was one book. And in our Bibles, in our canon, have been separated into two separate books, but ultimately uh, it was um, the same. When you get to Ezra chapter um, seven, between six and seven. There's a 60-year gap of time that takes place between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. And in that 60-year gap is where Esther lives. And Esther, we'll get to her story. She was the one with the king of Persia, and she saved um, Israel from extermination and from genocide, Queen Esther did. And Queen Esther is the, you know, God used this woman to save his people and to save all of Israel. Um, Ezra is a in, he's a scribe. He's also a priest, and so he's interested in um, um, script. Uh, I want to say scriptural things, Bible things. He's a, he's a Bible guy. He's a pastor. Um, and then again in Ezra, Nehemiah, one of the things we'll chronicle are there were when when the when the Jews left Babylon, they left in waves, and so there was waves that went back. The original wave we're going to see in here in Ezra chapter one was about fifty thousand Jews. The first wave. And they went back and they began to rebuild um, the temple itself. And, and there was no houses and they were building housing and they were trying to make living and trying to find build crops and do those things. Well, by the time we get to Nehemiah, that's in the third wave of the post-exilic books of going back to Israel, making Aliyah. And Nehemiah was the one who was responsible for um, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem around the city. Um, part of those that are still there today. Turn to Dan- hey, tr- turn a finger to Daniel, and let's look at Daniel nine really quick. You guys are like, man, I thought you were going to be done with Daniel. We are. Verse twenty-five. I want to bring your attention to Daniel nine twenty-five, and it says, "Know therefore and understand that from the going forth to command." to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So this decree we studied um, quite extensively in Daniel 9.25 is, is a, um, was from this time. It would be exactly um, this, this 483 years, 173,880 days from that decree until Jesus would enter Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey. And so we've studied that, but there's a decree there. Now back to Ezra, or yeah, Ezra. Um, We have a decree here that Cyrus is going to give, but this is not the same decree from Daniel chapter 9, because actually there's multiple decrees that the Jews are given in this Aliyah and this return to Israel. And so, um, and scholars can can disagree a little bit on which one marks Daniel 9.25. I identified the one that we're going to find in Nehemiah chapter 1 as the decree from Daniel chapter 5 because that decree was given by Artaxerxes Longimanus um, to go back and rebuild the wall. And so we'll, we'll get into that there. Um, all right, hey, you guys want to take a walk? Let's take a walk through Isaiah for a minute. I want to, I want to talk to you guys about something in this um, whole providence of God kind of idea. Um, start at uh, Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 4. Now, you know, one of the questions you get is, how do you know that your Bible is, is, is real or true? Or how do we know what, what to believe? Now, I want to take you, and this is a little kind of 
jog through a few verses in Isaiah, but if we just take it God's word at itself, and what does God's word say of itself? God's word of itself says that it's true and that it's real. And God claims to, to tell the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And so it's, it's the only book. And we have these layers of biblical truth that are um, prophecy, providence, and miracles. And those are the things that, that God's word does that no other book does. We don't have um, Muhammad performing any miracles, Joseph Smith performing any miracles um, across the board of other things. And um, you don't have the, 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 the um, none of those other writings. I don't care where they are. As you find them in, in other religions, none of them have the, the specific word of prophecy that, you're, that the Bible has, where it tells things before they are. Now, what we're going to see in Isaiah is that this particular event we're reading in Ezra chapter 1, this guy, this King Cyrus, God names Cyrus and says this is going to happen, that God's going to use a king named Cyrus to bring his people back to Israel. And Isaiah wrote 150 years before Cyrus was ever born. It said, Josephus tells us, Josephus is the Jewish historian who, who wrote um, in the first century, and, that, and he says that, that Daniel brought this prophecy because Daniel would have been an advisor to King Cyrus in Babylon and he brought this um, prophecy and he showed um, Cyrus in the Bible where, where God named him 150 years before he was born. How cool would that be? Like, so what if somebody comes to you and says, hey, listen, God wants to do something amazing in your life. He wrote about you. He named you 150 years before you were born. And you're like, no way. And they're like, Yahweh or Yahweh. Yeah. Um, so, um, but, but that's exactly what happens in your Bible is that God tells the end from the beginning. Now, again, I don't know, like, I'm not going to do this a very good job, but I'm going to try. Um, one of the things that's so powerful about our Bibles is the providence of God. Now, the providence is different than the miracles and the prophecy, right? The, there's just specific prophecies, and those are cool too. And you guys know, we have God has a perfect standard. Like, if, if a prophecy fails in our Bible, then, you know, if a prophecy failed in my Bible, then call a plumber because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it in the toilet. and It's no good anymore. It's not one thing. It has to have 100% accuracy. You know, Nostradamus, I think, had, which was pretty incredible, but he had like a 20% accuracy. You know, and he's, he's touted, but nobody wants to believe the Bible. But 100%, because it's God. And if God says it, it has to come true as he says it, and it has, and it's never failed. It has never been a fail. So we have the prophecies. But to me, what's even more, especially through our Old Testament, um, amazing about God's word is the providence of God. Everything in the Bible are these life stories where it's, it's not necessarily a specific miracle. It's a hundred things that have to happen by the providence of God to tell the story exactly the way that God wants to tell it. So, for example, we have Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22. Abraham and Isaac is an exact copy of Jesus dying on the cross and, and the story. The place where Abraham brought Isaac, the exact place where Jesus died on the cross. Isaac was 33. Jesus was 33. On and on and on. And all of the events. And our whole Old Testament is that way. Our whole Bible's that way, where there's all these events that God is preordaining that, that, it, that is providence, that God's hand is in all of these things, and they come to pass exactly the way that he laid them out to be consistent, to tell the story. Um, so many examples. You know, King, even things like David and Goliath. It's a story, it's a picture, it's a, a Bible picture of today, of all the things. Here we have King Cyrus and this king, 150 years before he's born, he's named. And, like, you know, what, what, just, what would God do? He wrote this 150 years before he was born. And what if on Cyrus's naming day, his mom and dad, he was, his mom was pregnant, and they said, you know, we love the name Cyrus. I don't know why. I just, I like Cyrus. Let's call him Cyrus. And on the day, Grandma shows up and says, you can't name him Cyrus. He's got to be John, you know, and they go on. And his dad changes the name, like, to, to John. It's all over. Like, we're done. Like, God's, God's word is done, and he missed it. But, I mean, the providence of God to make it exactly, but it's not hard. I make it like, oh, it's so hard, and all these things God's got to deal with, but when you can see the, the, he already saw it happen, you know, and then he wrote about it, and he, and he gave it to us 150 years before it happened, but to God, it, it had already happened, it would already come to pass, and he knew. Um, all right, Isaiah, you guys in Isaiah 41? Now, um, several things here that I, I want you to kind of highlight, if you, if you make, make notes. What I do is, sometimes I just circle the verse number in my Bible, and for certain verses I want to highlight or memorize, and 
I highlight, but this is what God said of, says of himself, about himself, about the providence of God, about who he is, um, over and over and over again here through um, the book of Isaiah. It says, who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. And then turn to verse 21. And he says, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that they were consider them and know the latter end of them. Or declare to us the things to come. Show the things that are to, that are to come hereafter. That we may know that you are God. So, so show these things. Tell these things. You know, predict these futures. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and we may see it. Now turn look at chapter 42 and verse number 8. Um, and he says, I am the Lord, and that is my name. And my glory I will not give to another. Don't ever try to take God's glory. He's not going to give it to you or a piece of it. Bad as Nacho Libre wanted to lit a piece of the glory. He wasn't going to get it. Nor are we. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to, to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Amen. And the things I declare before they sprang forth, I tell you of them. So, um, again, we have, the, the, you know, prophecy in a way. That, that before these things come to pass, God tells us of them. Um, we, we have miracles in the Bible that prove of God and and, his, and who he is and that he's different and he stands out among all the other gods and all the other religions. And then again, then that third layer biblically we have is this, this providence of God that we see here in um, Ezra. And then go to chapter 44 of Isaiah in verse 6 and God is talking about this same topic. All these verses I'm showing you are just kind of bouncing around in Isaiah a little bit, but you'll, you'll see they all have the same exact flavor. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people, and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear, nor be afraid. I have, have I not told you from that time and declared it? I love it. Hey, don't trip. What are you afraid of? I saw your future. I saw the past. I got this. I declared it. You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Question mark. Thank you, Damien. Is there a God before me, everyone? No. There is no other God. Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Look at 46, chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. There's a um, one of the apologists um, that I've seen on, on TV, and he goes to the conference here in, in our neighboring city over there, a general conference, and he stands in front, front of the conference, and he, he argues with those folks, and God bless him, you know, he has his ministry and his mitts, and, um, you know, he does what he does, but this is his text, his proof text verse here that he, he, he oftentimes will will share and so it's good to know it and it, it is true and it, it, it is complete contradiction to um, the the their theology and doctrine it says in verse 9 remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning everybody say the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure and so that I am the Lord God and besides me there is none. And there, there are no other gods. There will be no other gods. You and I will not be gods. There's not gods on Kolob. There's not gods on other planets. Um, there is one God and he is God, the only God. And that's what the word of God says. And that's what God says about himself over and over again through these verses I've shared with you in Isaiah. That I alone am the Lord of any other gods. He says, I know of not any or I know of not one. And so there is no other God. I know of, of none. And then so um, go back to Isaiah 44, 24. We're coming to the Cyrus part. Isaiah 44, 24. And it says, Thus says the Lord your, 
Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by itself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built. And this is the part of the, the, the providence or the prophecy here. And I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry? And I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Isaiah wrote that 150 years before Cyrus was born. And he calls him by name, Cyrus. Um, in Jeremiah um, 25.9, you can make a note there as well. And he shall perform all of my pleasures, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and the temple, your foundations shall be laid. Um, in Jeremiah 25.9, that reference is to Nebuchadnezzar because in this whole story, God also calls Nebuchadnezzar by name and Nebuchadnezzar is called the servant of God. And here Cyrus is called the shepherd of God in verse 28, that he's a shepherd and I'm going to use him. And then look at chapter 45. And he says, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and to lose the, ar loose the armor of kings and to open before him the double doors. And so Cyrus had done this. He had subdued the kings before him, but God takes credit for it. God said before it was going to happen, he told Daniel, um, while Daniel was in Babylon, he had told um, Isaiah, called him out by name. Um, Jeremiah mentions Nebuchadnezzar by name. And he had said of the history that, that Babylon would be conquered and that God would use King Cyrus. And that's exactly what he did, the Medo-Persians. And he would conquer kings. And again, Cyrus set up his, his, his home base in Babylon because it was the greatest city in the world. Um, but he, at that time, had conquered the known world. Um, and they'll, they'll rule and reign till 331 B.C. when the Grecian army takes over, Alexander the Great, um, many Grecian kings leading to Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and at the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, he was the one who was that type of the Antichrist who, like in 140 B.C., went into the Jewish temple and, and killed a pig, which, which raised up the, the Maccabeus, the Judas Maccabeus, and the Maccabeus revolt that fought back against Antiochus Epiphanes and took back Jerusalem. But then in that time, Rome starts to rise on the scene. And then during the time of, obviously before and, and, and during the time of Jesus, the Roman Empire would rule and reign. And they would rule and reign till 476 um, A.D. And then the Bible says the last group would be the feet and toes of iron and clay, which would be the revived Roman Empire. And the feet and toes of clay in Daniel's prophecy is going to be the, 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 the kingdom that the Antichrist will rise from. So that's yet future or in our present, um, that final kingdom, the revived Roman Empire. And so that's the one that... that will, um, Antichrist will come from, the revived Roman Empire. And so in verse um, 2 of chapter 45, I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze. And, and again, those were the um, uh, reference to Babylon. And cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches in the secret places. And so they went into the gates and they were wide open and no guards there and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name and the God of Israel. Can you imagine Daniel showing up to Cyrus's door that day? Hey, King Cyrus, I want to show you some verses. And then he reads, I will call you by your name and um, for I am the God of Israel. And, and the whole thing is fascinating because when we get back to Ezra here in a minute, um, Ezra's going to do all of this amazing stuff for Israel. He's this pagan king, and he's going to give them gold. He's going to give them silver. He's going to give them all these things and send them back with God's blessing. He's going to say that God told him. And again, with the word of prophecy, as I've told you guys before, the word of prophecy, as you share the word of prophecy, we encourage you. The Bible says in the New Testament that, that, that prophecy is to be desired above all the gifts. I think we, we, for some reason, we put a big emphasis on speaking in tongues as a gift of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible actually talks about the gift of prophecy being the most desirable gift because the gift of prophecy edifies the body and the gift of tongues edifies yourself. But if somebody comes to you, and I encourage you guys, if God gives you a gift of prophecy, if he gives you a word of wisdom, 
for another brother or sister in our church and in your life, you go to them, you share the word of prophecy. If you're praying for people, you're asking God for something to tell somebody, God will give you a word of prophecy. He'll give you something encouraging to share with somebody else and share it with them. But we always share it in the same vein. We share it not, not as thus saith the Lord and that, you know, you, you have to take this and this is God's will for your life, but that it's supposed to be, it's meant to be confirmation of something that God has already been speaking to their heart. And so if you receive, and your job as, as the prophet is, is to just deliver the word that God's given you. How they receive it is up to them, right? Don't force it on them. Share it with faith. Share it. Um, you, the Bible says you prophesy according to your faith. So in faith, have faith, step out in faith. When it makes you nervous, when it's hard, when you feel like, oh, they're not going to listen. I don't know if I heard from the Lord, but you be faithful and you share that in an encouraging way. And then if you're the person receiving it, if it's wild, then, you know, you receive it with a grain of salt. And, 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 it, and it should, the way it should work, um, you know, is that it's something that God's Holy Spirit has uh, already been speaking to your heart. I had a call yesterday, and, and, and some, somebody here from, this, from our church um, called me yesterday, and he said, hey, I was praying for you, and I feel like, you know, the Lord wanted me to share something with you. And he shared it, and it was exactly what God had already been speaking to me. And so it was like, you know, I told him, thank you. And I'm glad you shared that. I'm glad you called me. And, you know, and, and we know it was from the Lord because God had already told me the same thing. And that's the way it should work. But now I have, like, I feel so much more confident in what I heard from the Lord. Because, you know, like, knowing the voice and the will of God, it's not easy. You know, and, and I asked somebody, you know, one of the things I'll ask you guys all the time is, you know, what did God tell you? And, and I, I was talking to Sam today. Sam's praying about something. A couple weeks ago, Sam approached me and he said, hey, will you pray about this for me and with me? He's got some decisions to make. So I asked him today. I was like, Hey, what did God tell you? And he's like, so he starts to tell me, he's like, well, I think that's what God said. And I said, look, you're, you're in good shape. That's how we all feel. You know, that's the way it works. Like, you can't always be like, you know, like, I'm feeling this is what God said, but, you know, I don't always know for sure. But then when, you, when someone comes and, and gives you a word of prophecy, now you're like, okay, now I know. Like, I have these multiple layers, and then if I get it in the word of God as well, then forget it. You'll never take it from me. I, I, God spoke to me through the word, spoke to my heart. Somebody confirmed it in prophecy. But again, with those gifts of the Holy Spirit, let's not be afraid to use those. Let's not be afraid to, when, when the Bible says you have not because you ask not, you know, and they're not weird. They're, they're, they're a real healthy function in our body and they're necessary and they're, they're, they're all wrapped in the love of Jesus and they have to be shared in love and done in love. You know, and it's not because it makes you the most spiritual person in our church because you go around giving prophecies. If that's your, your, your motivation, you're, you're going to fall on your face anyways. But if your motivation is to love people, and God wants to use you. He wants to use you. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever known somebody that kind of flows in the gift of prophecy a little more freely. Like, part of you wants to be around that person, and part of you doesn't because you're like, maybe they know something about me that I don't want them to know. <laughs> it's a little bit scary. Like, there was Pastor Poncho Juarez. He has, uh, it's funny because it's, it's, it's like he has a daughter, and this, this girl prophesied. And one of the, they were at a, a, a Calvary Chapel, they were at a pastor's conference, youth pastor's conference. And um, Pastor Joe Foch's son was there, and they were about the same age. Pancho Juarez is in L.A., Joe Foch is in Philadelphia. They were all at this um, youth pastor's conference together, and, and Pancho Juarez's daughter got up, and she started sharing in a big group, and, and she, she was bold, you know, and she said, the Lord gave me a word for somebody in here, and, um, and she started sharing some, some, some encouraging words that she felt like the Lord was speaking to her, and it was I exactly, I mean, it was spot on to what somebody was going through in the room. And then she did it like three more times, and every time it was confirmed exactly what she said. So Joe Foch, is, who's Poncho and Joe are good friends, and his son was there as well. And he's like, Dad, he's telling his dad this story. He's like, Dad, Poncho's daughter, she was prophesying in our group. And man, you just feel the spirit, and she was right on. And everything was one, you know, like everything she said was so perfect to the situation, the people she was speaking to. And, and he's like, Dad, I think she's really cool, but I'd never want to marry her. <laughs> she, she, she would know things that she wasn't supposed to know, like, <laughs> but, yeah, but anyways, don't get it lost, like, in, in, in encouraging us, right, as a church family tonight, that, that we, we, want, we need the gifts of the Holy Spirit to flow in our ministry. We need Him to flow in our lives. You know, for you parents, I think for you moms especially, one of the things I've seen in the church so many times is where God just gives you some amazing word about your children, or they're in trouble and you know it, or there's something going on, or they're doing something, and you, you can look them in the eyes just with the Spirit of God and say, hey, this is going on in your life because God told me, and you see that as you seek that, as you seek that for your children. And so, good stuff. So verse 3, chapter 45, verse 3, who call you by name, and the God of Israel, and Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. 
it's almost like, and forgive me, forgive me, Lord, for, but it's almost like, it's almost like God is bragging here. Now, I know that's a bad word. I don't know what else to say. I don't know how to say it. It's, it's bragging. But it's like he's repeating himself. Like, I called him by name. I called him by name. <laughs> like, like, even called you by your name in verse 3. And then verse 4. I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. He didn't even know him. That's like, a, like you know, like a child of God. He was a Persian king. And, and, he, and it wasn't even, you know, God used him. God uses things in our world, people around us that, that don't necessarily Christians. By, by, but, God, but by God's providence, guess what's going to happen? God's perfect will is going to come to pass. Guess what's going to happen through the book of Revelation? Everything, exactly the way that God laid it out in the book of Revelation. Exactly to a T in God's providence. And he said, I, I, I called you, I named you, though I have not, you have not known me. And this is all in the context of Cyrus, you guys. This entire part here where I'm reading, really from verse 24, um, Judah will be restored of chapter 44, of chapter 45, all about King Cyrus. Um, I have named you, though you did not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God beside me. What other gods are there besides the Lord God? None. We will never be a God. I will gird you through, though you have not known me. I will gird you, there. I will gird you though you have not known me. They, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Back to Ezra chapter 1, please. All right, verse 2 says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. Is that true? Yes. He was, he was a conqueror of the known world. He was the fulfillment of multiple prophecies. He was the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, this, this Medo-Persian king. Um, of kings of the earth, the Lord God has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea, in Judah. Um, you, do you guys know that, that King Cyrus to this day in Israel is, uh, he's, they, they make coins. They made a coin uh, recently. Hey, Brian, can you get those pictures? The, uh, this is the, I think I took a picture of one. You guys recognize those two faces? Is it hard to see? This is, this is a coin they minted in Israel, like a commemorative coin. It's not a coin of antiquity. But for you, those in the back, that's the face of President Trump and um, King Cyrus. And, and really because the, the, the culture in Israel and among the rabbis and those is that these are two men that were secular um, rulers and kings that God used for the providence of Israel. Um, the, they give um, President Trump credit because he restored the embassy in Jerusalem um, to, to Jerusalem and, and proclaimed from the, you know, every president really, you guys, for the last 25 years, has said that they're going to declare Jerusalem the capital of, of Israel, and nobody ever followed through with it for political reasons. Um, and Trump was the first one who made the promise and actually followed through with it. We moved our embassy to Jerusalem, and they proclaimed Jerusalem as the official capital of um, Israel. And so, um, and, and for many of the Jews, for many of the, the Orthodox Jews, that was very necessary in fulfilling biblical prophecy that they're waiting on and things that they needed to happen. So it was a big deal for them. So again, King Cyrus and Trump are kind of hailed in Israel as these pagan kings that God used by his providence for, um, for their good. Verse 3 says, Who is among you, all of his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And he doesn't say my God there, right? He says, may his God, so may your God, not my God. And with Nebuchadnezzar, it was the same way. King Nebuchadnezzar, who God used, and God by the providence. But Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, got saved. And Nebuchadnezzar did change in his progression of becoming an ox and eating the grass and from, from his God to my God, as Nebuchadnezzar would say. Who is among you, verse 3, of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, God of Israel, he is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place um, where he dwells, let, let the men of his place help him with 
the silver, the gold, with goods and livestock, besides freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So to me, a little reminiscent of um, first thing that Cyrus does is he restores the temple treasures. Where were the temple treasures? They were in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar took them. He put them in. Belteshazzar took them out and partied with them. They came in. They, they, they overtook Belteshazzar. They killed him. Um, the Medo-Persians take over. Now they're in control of the things that Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple. King Cyrus, as he sends um, this first group led by Zerubbabel back to Jerusalem, um, he sends them with these, these artifacts of the temple and these temple gold. And then what they also do is he, he makes a decree that the people should also give provisions to those that are going to make Aliyah. And, um, you know, like, remember when they left Egypt, God did kind of the same thing. And all the Egyptians gave them silver and gold and things and provisions and animals in order for them to leave. And so here this group is going to be given provisions in verse 4. And then um, verse 5 kind of begins a, a section of genealogy. There's a couple highlights we'll make as we go through this. We won't read all the genealogy, but I think there's a couple cool things in it. Um, and it says, Then the heads of the fathers houses of judah and benjamin and the priests and the levites with all the spirit with all whose spirits god had moved arose to go up and build the house of the lord which is in jerusalem so um verse five is important again in the providence of god because all of those whose whose spirits god had moved they arose to go up and build the house now what we're going to find is that only fifty thousand left to go to Israel, about 50,000, roughly, 49, something like that. Roughly 50,000 went back. And, and how many were in Babylon? I think, you know, it's hard to say um, how many Jews were in Babylon. Some were left in Israel when Nebuchadnezzar conquered. Um, the northern tribes were, were in Assyrian captivity, and they were having their own kind of fight. It was the southern two tribes, so hundreds of thousands, two, three, they had been there 70 years. They had kids. Many of these that went back to Babylon had never never been in Babylon. We're going to see in a minute um, the one who's going to God's going to use and was prophesied over is one of the Jews named Zerubbabel. Have you guys heard that name? Does the name sound familiar? Zerubbabel is the guy, and Zerubbabel was um, his name is Zerub, Babel, which means offspring of Babel. He was born in Babylon. He's from Babylon, and we'll see his Babylonian name as well. He had never even been to Israel. But listen, the work of God. Um, will be accomplished by the people of God who respond to the move of God. Okay? So one more time, the work of God will be accomplished by the people of God who respond to the move of God. The work of God will be accomplished by the people of God who respond to the move of God. And, and so as God moves on our hearts, we're going to respond. You know, God moved on my heart to, to, to leave Southern California and move to Utah. You know, and so there's a, there's a vision, there's a, there's a call. And, and it's, it's funny because really in the flesh, the, there was not a whole lot for the, these Jews to want to go back to, to Israel. When they got back to Israel, first of all, it was a 900-mile walk. They had 700 horses, it's going to say, but 50,000 people. They weren't riding horses or animals. They were walking for 900 miles to get back from Babylon, ancient Babel, to Jerusalem. What's 900 miles from here? I couldn't think of something. Where I'm from, L.A. is, you know, Los Angeles is about 600 miles from here. So that's not even far enough. Okay, so you walk from here to Oregon. I don't know what part of Oregon, but walk from here all the way to the ocean. Okay, to the, to the ocean in Oregon. Like, anybody want to join me tomorrow as we begin our journey? You know, walk. Like, you're going to walk. Yeah, you're going to walk 900 miles. You've never been there. There's nothing waiting for you when you get there. It's not like, oh, there's double-wide mobile homes when you get there, or there's some shanties or something. I don't know what they do in Oregon, but some hipster digs when you get there, and nothing. It's rubble. It's, it's ruins. There's nothing there. You're going to have to build your own houses. You're going to be sleeping in tents. You're going to be, you know, you, you, why would you go? What, what's there? In Babylon, you know what God told them? God had them do it in Babylon? They built houses. They, they built businesses. The Jews have been pretty successful everywhere they've gone. You know, very innovative, and they had money, and they had things, and, and Babylon let them let acclimate into, into the city to some degree. And, um, and so they, they, they moved, and they went because God had impressed upon their hearts to go. You know, there wasn't a lot in the flesh that, you know, desired to, to leave where I was in Southern California. I was, I was dead set on moving to North Dakota before I came here because I felt like God was leading me there. 
And it was like, that was even less desirable. Like North Dakota is one of the coldest states in the, f- in the lower 48 or the coldest, I think, next to Minnesota in the lower 48. It's 40 below and the wind chill factor. And we went and visited the school and they, uh, they had inclement weather signs in the school for when the playground was closed. And the inclement weather sign was like, it's 10 below, the playgrounds are closed. And I was like, what do you do when it's 9 below? They're like, you go outside and play. What are you talking about? You know, like. I was like, really, where I'm from when it's 60, we put out the inclement weather signs. <laughs> and we leave our kids inside. That was no joke. That was no joke in our Christian school. Like, if it was 60 degrees, like, the kids stayed inside. And so I didn't, I didn't want to, you know, in the flesh go, but, but the Spirit of God had moved on me. You know, one of the things I think you find, you know, that we found, that I've found here in Twila that's difficult is that, you know, some, sometimes, and over the years, you know, the church has grown a little bit, but it, especially in those early years, you know, a, a husband and wife about my age, a little younger, would walk in, handsome couple, and they would both have their Bibles in their hands. First time I met him, and I was like, just such a pleasant surprise, and yeah, we were involved in a Calvary in such and such place, we just moved here for a job, and um, they come, they get involved, they start, you know, God starts using them, and um, they're helping, they're serving, and six months, and this happened multiple times, six months. This one particular family, I'm trying not to say any names, and they bought a, a, a renting, I think, a house in Stansbury, right on the lake. He had a job here that moved from Nevada, and uh, they're here. she got a job at a dental office, and they were a blessing, man. She was, they were part of Calvary, they were Christian when they got here, they were servants, she, she was a prayer, she had a prayer ministry, a prayer, heart for prayer. Uh, her husband was way cool, her and Lydia and I got along, both husband and wife, we were becoming friends pretty quickly, and six months, and she was just like, I'm leaving. She hated it. She just, it was just like, her kids were having a miserable time. I think her kids were junior high, and um, and then they were not fitting in, and they were miserable. She was the only one in her work that was, um, so she was the only one at her work that wasn't. <laughs> and um, she was having a hard time there, and, and, and things were just difficult, and, and the kids, again, were having, were, you know, and she was mama bear, and her kids were coming home crying because they weren't making friends, and the kids in the neighborhood weren't playing with them and things and this and that. And she, she made her husband quit his job, true story, quit his job, moved back to Nevada with no prospects or nothing. She was leaving. <laughs> and they left. And, and you know what? I mean, like, part of me was like, you know, it, it, there has to be a, a call of God. There has to be. You're going to feel that way. And, and I usually would never say this to you guys, but I guess I'm already committed, so i got to say it. But um, I, I could see myself in the same position. I work a secular job. I move here for work. You know, my kids were in elementary school when I moved here. My oldest was a fifth grader when we moved here. He's a sophomore in college now. Um, he had a hard time. And I don't know why I would have put my kids through that, if I just came here for a secular job and I just came here for work and I could probably find a job in another city where my kids wouldn't face that. So I did it. You know, I'm here and I stay here. I'm committed here because God's called me here and there's a vision here. And so my, you know, sometimes I I worry when I see people come, you know, and and, and what I love to see, what I'm looking for is, you know, people that, that have come but also have a vision that they're here because there's a mission here. And if, it, and if you're here on mission and you're here because, you know, th- this is the least evangelical populated county in the United States. They're in the top five. Less than 1% evangelical Christians. The other, the other four in the top five, they're all in northern Utah. And, and so, you know, this is a mission field. And if you come here with, with that kind of understanding and you come here with a vision and a passion, like, I want to make a difference. I want to be used by Jesus. I want to serve God here. I'm here for ministry. I'm here for a call. Then, then I think you'll sustain, you'll, you'll, you'll live through, you know, just being here for a, a job when there's other jobs and things here just aren't comfortable. They're difficult. They can be difficult here for, you know, and, and so, but when the Spirit of God moves on our hearts, we respond and the will of God gets done by the people of God when the Spirit of God moves upon our hearts. And so that's exactly what's happening here in Nehemiah is there's a certain group of people, a small group of people um, that, that, that went back, but the providence of God began to stir their hearts and began to move them, and so they go. And um, what's that? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we weren't going nowhere. I couldn't. I could have went to Hawaii, planted a church on a beach. Caleb just walked in. He's like, "Yeah, Dad, why didn't we do that?" <laughs> but 
honestly, I'd, I'd be miserable today. You know, I, I'd, I'd be miserable. I wouldn't have Gabrielle and, and then all kinds of things. And just what God has done. You know, it's like, you, you're only, you know, you're really going to be happy in the center of God's will. You know, no matter where that is. I could be in Hawaii, but out of the center of God's will, and I'm going to be miserable. I could be in Saudi Arabia right now, if that was the center of God's will. And, you know, we had, yeah, there's peace and there's, there's blessing. And, you know, some of our friends were missionaries for a season. They're, they're not there now, but they were missionaries for a season in Afghanistan. And they, they, they're good friends of ours. And uh, Mark and Celeste Wahlberg, and she was, she was telling me that they, they washed their fruit in iodine. And that, that's what they had to do to be able to eat a pear or, or a peach or something. They had to wash it with iodine. And it's like, you know, living in those kind of conditions to serve Jesus. And they were where God had them. And they were, they were good there, you know. And so, you know, my encouragement kind of back bringing this back home is for us is, you know, let's all be on mission. Let, let's be here no matter what region we're here. If we're here on, on a mission that, that we have an opportunity really to make a difference and serve God, you know, where else? You're not going to go anywhere else practically in the world where 99 out of 100 people need Jesus. Like, you got no excuse. If you can't lead people to Jesus here, then forget about it, right? Like, what if you go to a place like San Diego and somewhere where there's a church on every corner, the Midwest somewhere, and, you know, kind of where I'm from, you could you could bounce a rock off of 10 Calvary chapels. You throw a rock in, it'll bounce off 10 Calvary chapels. You know, they're everywhere, and, you know. All right, so that's verse 5. That's the, again, the moving of God arose. And then um, we're only going to cover four chapters tonight, you guys, so we'll be, we'll be done here in a few. Verse, chapter, verse 6 says, And all those who were around them encouraged with the articles of silver and gold and with livestock and with precious things besides all that was, that, that was willingly offered. Everybody say willingly. How are you guys supposed to give to the Lord? Say begrudgingly? Out of obligation? No willingly 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 give to the lord so um if you're not giving to the lord willingly if you think you're buying salvation or you're buying favor or you're you're tithing because you have to stop tithing stop giving until your heart gets to the place where you you can give it of a free will offering you believe in it you believe you're giving it unto the lord that god has spoken to you about it that god is doing it um that god is calling now um if you continue to give you, there's no reward for it because God is not rewarding. I don't care how much you give. You could be the biggest tither in any church you're attending. Um, God is not impressed about the amount. God doesn't need your money. He does want and need your heart. And if your heart is tied to it and you're doing it as an act of faith, you're doing it as unto him, you're doing it free will, giving. You know, the Bible says about giving that we should give hilariously. So that's like, <laughs> as you drop your offering, and I don't see you guys doing that on Sunday morning. Yeah, walking and falling on the floor to try to drop your offering in the love box. So maybe we all need to check our hearts a little bit. No, I'm teasing. But um, but again, yeah, this hilarious. And that's exactly how they gave. You know what's fascinating? Um, it, it's so cool because all the way through, my favorite one is the one where they were building a temple. When Solomon was building the temple and he told the people what they needed. And it said it got to the point where the people brought so willingly, brought so many things that Solomon told them, stop giving. Can you imagine coming to church on Sunday? And I'm up here, and I'm like, people, stop giving. We have so much money, we don't know what to do with it. Stop giving. <laughs> don't worry, that will never happen here. Much as you give, I'll just give it away. So we'll, we'll keep having needs. We're pretty good at giving it away. But God's blessing us for it, and we just keep giving it away. All right, here we go. Um, we're gonna, we do going to move a little bit. Look at verse 8. It says, Then Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out, to Shezbazar. So Shezbazar, that's, um, you can make a note there, that's Zerubbabel, same guy, that's his, he, that's his um, um, Babylonian name. His, he, his Hebrew name is Zerubbabel. This is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives. God knew how many knives were, were taken from the temple that, that were used for animal sacrifices when Nebuchadnezzar took the things of the temple and they had stored them in Babylon. And King Cyrus gets them out and he gives them to Zerubbabel to go back to Jerusalem with the articles of the temple. And there were 29 knives in the things. Knives that hadn't, hadn't tasted blood in, in years, right? 70 years of captivity. This is 
70 years after they came out of captivity um, in, in those times. And so the, these things just were there, the dried blood maybe from the, the time past and, um, and, and all those things. So actually, the, the, this is 536, so this is more close to the beginning of it. By the time we get to Nehemiah, another 70 years passes. So. Um, in verse 10, it says 30 gold basins. The bold gold basins would be used to catch the blood of the lambs that they would then take to the, the, the altar. And, and once a year, they would take them to the... Once a year, the high priest would take them where? Into the Holy of Holies and place them on the, on the altar or the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? They would have had a brazen altar, a normal altar that on the daily sacrifices, the blood would go on the altar to atone from the sins. But once a year... It would be taken into the Holy of Holies and placed upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Hallelujah. Verse 10 says, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of similar kinds. There's 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. And all these Shish Bazar. You guys looking for a name for your kid? Shish Bazar. No, that's 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 a Babylonian name. Don't give them that one. Zerubbabel's better took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. So we got from Jerusalem to Babylon, now reverse Babylon back to Jerusalem as they're going to head back. Chapter 2 says, Now these are the people of the providence who came back from the captivity, and those who had been carried away with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, to everyone to his own city. Those who came with Zerubbabel, that one's pretty easy. You can see the two words there very clearly, Zerub and Babel. Um, Babel, again, is, is the short of Babylon. And so the word um, Zerub means offspring. So, so Zerubbabel was an offspring of Babel. He had never been to Jerusalem. And he's going to take this 900-mile walk because God had stirred upon his heart to do so. And there was Nehemiah. That, that's going to be our Nehemiah from the book of Nehemiah. Sariah, Sarah, Sariah, Reliah. Mordecai, now unfortunately that's not the Mordecai of Esther. Bilshan, Mispar, Bigva, Rehum, and Bana, the number of the men of the people of, um, actually the both of those, um, yeah, they're not the same ones from, um, actually the, the, that Nehemiah there and the Mordecai are different than the ones we'll see in Esther and Nehemiah. Okay, then I'm not going to go through all these. These are genealogies. You know, it's kind of cool. And sometimes you get genealogies in your Bible and you're like, what are they there for? You know, there's always a reason for this stuff, right? And maybe today, 2021, some of this stuff is thousands of years old. And they're, you know, but, but just understand, this, this book was written in its day, and it was given to a group of people. And so for them, it had powerful meaning. Like, if you're reading of these things, and you're seeing, and you know these families, like, like if, when you're in the rapture, and you're going up, and then you're seeing the people you love that you weren't sure that were going to go up, and you're like, oh, the Jones family, and this, and that, and you're seeing the names, and the people, and then you get to heaven and you look around and you're like, man, I can't believe you're here. And, you know, you're like, yeah, I can't believe you're here, you know. And the people that you thought were going to be there that aren't. And the people that, you know, you were positive were going to, you know, vice versa. And so, but, so this particular list, it always has meaning. It always has thing. And it would have been a historical um, reading of this that would have been meaningful to those that had these lists and had these names. Um, let's look at a couple of them of the people that went back. I think it was cool because in verse 4 it says the, the people of um, the Shephetah, 372. So they took their cooking family with them. That was the people from the family of the Shephetah. In verse 4, the Shephetahs, so they like to eat on the way. That was cool. And then um, you look at verse 20 and it says the people of Gibar. Um, again, these are cities of places. The people of Bethlehem, very specific um, 133 people that were people who were born and, and, and raised around the area of Bethlehem that were taken into captivity. Kirjoth, Iram in verse 25. These are just names that you guys would be familiar with, so I'm reading them. Um, Kirjoth, Ariam is where David rescued the, the, the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines, and then they took it and it rested in Kirjoth, Iram for, for a time before David went back and he got it. He tried to bring it the wrong way, and Uzzah died, and then he went back and he got it the right way. And then in verse 28, um, the men of Bethel and Ai. Remember the stories in the cities of Bethel and Ai in the book of Joshua? 
and these cities they conquered. In verse 34, the people of Jericho. We know what happened in Jericho. The walls fell down in Jericho. Verse 40, the Levites. Now, again, the Levites, for today's terms, those are the, the, the pastors, the leaders, the, the rabbis, the spiritual leaders. The tribe of Levi was the tribe that God set apart to be in charge of the things of the temple, of spiritual things, of sacrifices, of pastoral things. And so the pastors in verse 40. And then in verse 41, listen to this. The singers of the sons of Asaph, 128. So they also brought with them worship leaders. And I always tell you guys, and I always highlight it, but listen, worship is Bible. It's a part of who we are as believers from Adam and Eve. It's God's will and prescription. I don't ever want us to feel like, you know, we do worship in church or we we sing songs in church because it's entertainment or it's something to do so before I preach. It's what God's word has prescribed for his people for us to worship him. And it's important. It's soulish. It touches your soul. It ministers to you. Um, Worship in the word of God is always one, two punch in the Bible everywhere you see it. And it's valuable in your life as a Christ follower, worship through music. And what do you see all the way through the history of Israel? What did they do when the walls of Jericho fell down? Do you know who led that victory? The worship team. They put the worship team out front and they led the way. And all the way through, it's the worship team, the worship team, the worship team, the Levites. And so um, we have the singers. And then um, let's go all the way to verse um, 63. And it says, And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till the priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. I have a couple more pictures um, I want to show you guys um, of, a, of a linen ephod. So this this is a, a black stone and a white stone. Now, tradition tells us this is a priestly garment. One more picture, Brian. Um, maybe a little different picture there. So this is kind of what the high priest would have looked like. Now, in that garment, it was very gaudy. It was, it was all these stones. It's described in the book of Revelation. It's described through the Old Testament. There would be these 12 stones representing the the 12 tribes of Israel and the different amethysts and, and, and sardines and all these different 12 stones. But also within the, the pocket of the, the high priest was this idea that we see in the Old Testament of the Urim and the Thummim. Now, the Urim and the Thummim biblically is kind of an anomaly a little bit because the Bible doesn't really tell us um, what it was. Um, what, you, what you kind of, it's nowhere in the Bible. It's mentioned a couple times, and usually what you um, discern from the Bible, and sometimes we make our conclusions out of silence, right? And so in, in that case, it, it was oftentimes, it's like they were, they were discerning the will of God through the thing called the um, Urim and Thummim. And so um, tradition is that it, it, it could have been uh, this black stone and this white stone in the pouch of the high priest, and as they would, you know, dis- determine the will of God, they would reach in, and if you pulled out the black stone, it, it meant negative. If you pulled out the white stone, it meant positive. And it was a way to determine God's will. But we, we see it up until the time of about King David, the use of the Urim and the Thummim, and the Thummim uh, up until the time of King David. After that, you don't see it again. You definitely don't see it practiced in the New Testament. The other thing we see in the Old Testament about discerning the will of God with some of this kind of stuff is um, the fleece. Um, do you remember Gideon? He put out a fleece, um, but you don't see that anywhere after that. You don't see it in the New Testament. We are not to use Umum, Urim, and Thummim to decide the will of God. We are not to cast lots or we're not to roll dice. We're not to um, put out fleeces before the Lord. That is not the way today that we just determine the will of God. Okay? And so anybody that knows exactly what the Urim and the Thummim is and how they're used, they didn't get it from the Bible. Nobody else knows. God never told us, but I think there's a few people that think they know what they are, and it's far-fetched what they say, but that's kind of the, the practice. First Samuel 14:41. if you're taking notes, um, the Urim and the Thummim are mentioned in your Bibles, um, and so here they are consulting from the Urim and the Thummim, the way to dis- determine and decipher God's will, but they do know, we do know that the the terms Urim and Thummim mean lights and perfection is what those Hebrew words mean. Um, the rabbinical tradition holds that there was a pocket in the linen breastplate worn by the high priest that held the Urim and the Thummim. Um, 
But again, we, we want to be careful from those things. We don't want to determine. You know, the easiest, the best way to know God's will, and don't do that room and room room stuff, is you, you get one of the magic eight balls and you ask it the question and you shake it. That's the best way to get God's will, really. But don't get caught up in the Urim and the Thummim and that kind of stuff. Okay, but the Bible, again, doesn't tell us, so be careful with things that the Bible doesn't say about making too many conclusions on those types of things or people that, you know, be weary of people that make some solid conclusions on things the Bible is silent about. In verse 64, it says, The whole assembly together was 42,360. So here we have 42,000 mentioned. I won't go through it, but if you go through all the numbers, there's about another 7,000. So the 42 and the 7 is 49. So I said roughly 50,000. It's like 49,700 or something that went back in this first Aliyah on the 900-mile walk. And then look at verse number 70. And it says, So the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the who? So the, the what would we call those dudes? The worship. Look at verse 65. Sorry, back at the 65. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there was 7,337, they had 200 men and women, singers, the singers mentioned again. So what do you have? Worship. You know, one of the things like that, that is just practical, and I love it because it's just people for all of history, and it's just life. It's God, too. Um, they, they, if, if they were singing along the way, if you had a 900-mile walk, like something practical to keep your mind and busy, and if you're singing songs, you know, it goes a little better. We go through um, Hezekiah's tunnel in Israel. And it's it's the tunnel that was dug um, from both sides through solid bedrock in Israel. And you get to go in one side, and I forget how long Hezekiah's tunnel is, um, 600 yards or something, but it's pitch black. There's water up to your knees sometimes, sometimes higher. Um, you have to duck a little bit to get through it. There's lots of people in there in front of you, your whole tour. So there's 40 people in there somewhere in front of you or behind you. Like if you're claustrophobic or, you know, but we walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. It comes out of the pool, Bethesda, and, and it's just kind of fun. And so, you know, you have your flashlight or, you know, your thing and you're, you're held down a little bit. And when I, when I did it, when I was, when I was young, we went through Hezekiah's tunnel and it didn't bother me. It was fine. This last time I did it, I made me a little, I don't know, it was weird. I'm like, I'm getting old. It was like going on a roller coaster from when I was a kid to today. And I don't know, I didn't, I didn't dig it. I was like, next time, I think I might spit that one out. But everybody loves it. We go through there. But we sing all the way through. We have the worship guys in front, and they start leading songs. And if you sing all the way through Hezekiah's Tunnel, it does make it go a lot faster and better. Um, so who knows? I don't know when we're going to Israel again, but when we do, you guys will get to experience it. All right, we'll take chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 next week. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for your word. God, we thank you for this, this topic tonight. Jesus, I pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts, God, by your Holy Spirit in a better way than I did, Lord, about the providence of God and how that, that just plays in, in our Bibles, Lord, that you, by your providence, you orchestrate lives and stories that tell your narrative, that are your history, that, 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 that prophesy future events, that set up kings that you're going to use and 200 years to set your people free and you're going to call them by name and father we just thank you all the way through the word of god that we see your hand and lord as we see the providence that's fulfilled and passed lord we know that your providence continues in our lives today and we thank you and we praise you in jesus name amen all right god bless you guys have a great week